You are joining the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And our first story today, well, the clock is ticking on the Waimanana landfill on the west side of Oahu. The main garbage dump for the island is supposed to close in less than six years, and the city has to decide on a new site by the end of the year. But this week, an advisory committee failed to recommend a new location. There are concerns the proposed sites endanger our aquifers, and there are other environmental challenges for the city. We talked to Roger Babcock this morning. He's in charge of the city's environmental services department, which handles solid waste. The committee has been discussing what other options the city has. Babcock says at this point, it's not clear what path the city will take. You know, they have suggested things like even, you know, staying where we are at Waimanalo Gulch, looking to get perhaps some sort of a modification of Act 73 to allow perhaps use of some poor conservation lands that are currently not allowed, looking into possibly trying to work with the military on some military lands, also you know, sort of requesting an extension on our deadlines. But we haven't figured out yet what we're going to do. We, we, still, we still have some time. They're going to finish their work in June. We should have a final report in July. In the meantime, we are trying to look under every stone and try and figure out what other options we have. And so we're just moving forward. It's not easy. It's never easy to, to site a landfill, of course. And it's not necessarily any easier to site a new landfill than it is to stay in an existing landfill. They both involve the same, sort of the same process. We, we still have to go through a, an environmental impact statement process, including public hearings and gathering of information and responding. And then you have to go through procurement and permitting. And it's a complicated process no matter what we do. I know that the advisory committee had a list of sites, but, you know, they, you know, had some challenges, right? I mean, you have to have a buffer zone. There's a tsunami inundation aspects to consider. And then this whole thing with the Board of Water Supply, you know, the concern for the aquifer. Correct. Some of the things are in statute. For example, you mentioned the half mile buffer with a resident from a residential property line, as well as tsunami inundation zone, as well as a buffer around airports. And in the Act 73, in addition to the buffer zone, it also has the conservation lands. So those are those are off limits. And then, you know, there are actually more than one concern with respect to the more inland areas. There's the uh, aquifer concerns, and then there's agricultural lands concerns as well. The whole thing with the Board of Water Supply, I mean, that was just something that uh, was raised fairly recently. Yeah, correct. Actually, the Board of Water Supply was always concerned about any a landfill to be sited over the aquifers, even in the past. So they would always have voiced their very strong concerns in in all the past proceedings as well. It's much more in the in the forefront of the news and people on people's mind because of everything going on, of course, with Red Hill. So it's a um, you know it's definitely at the forefront now on everybody's mind. Everybody's really aware about our groundwater, and I think people are learning a lot more about their water, right, and where it comes from, and 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 all that. And whereas many people would, probably wouldn't have known much about that before. And you have a background in water. You understand, you know, what's at risk. But all of the sites that the advisory committee was considering, you know, have that issue about siting over the aquifer, right? That's correct. So again, you know, that is a risk that can be mitigated, not on this island presently, 
but in of course in in many other places and and in here in the past there are many historical landfills that are that are over the aquifers so landfills can be engineered so that the risks are very much minimized a common practice where where it's necessary so the the committee uh, did rank the sites and i think cunia was up at the top of the list, which is nearby, relatively yep. nearby. So we'll see, I guess, what they recommend come June, but it certainly does narrow the timeline if the city's got to choose a site by the end of the year. That's correct, yes. Yeah, so we do have till the end of the year to comply with our special use permit for the for the landfill. So it's part of our existing use permit for the existing site is to close it by March 2nd of 2028 but also to name a new site by December 31st, 22. That was a condition of, you know, issuing the permit for the, the last expansion, you know, that, that we're operating under right now. So those are the those are the deadlines that comes from the, the Land Use Commission. So, yes, we will be working to, of course, to meet that deadline. So it is coming up quick, but there is time, actually. So we will be working working hard to meet that. Then the option of possibly asking for an extension remaining there or changing the designation of of the property out there. I mean, there are still the concerns that the residents have about being unfairly burdened with these types of facilities. Yes, absolutely. And those concerns, you know, have been there for, for a long time. And we're very much aware of that and sensitive to that. So that's why, you know, we're proceeding to locate another site. By time, the landfill will close in March of 2028. It will have been in operation for almost 40 years. So it went into operation in 1989. So, you know, that that's a really long time. You know, one of the things that we can do and we've been doing and will continue to ramp up is, you know, diversion. So, you know, as you know, we convert most of, you know, anything that's burnable is, almost anything that's burnable is converted into electricity at the H-Power Refuse to Energy Facility, you know, out here in Kapolei. And that produces 9 or 10%, you know, of the electricity for the island. So it's an important, you know, reuse of, of the material. So that works, you know, really well. And, you know, it has the, it had the additional, the third boiler put in several years ago. And so that means that it, it's almost, it's really never completely offline. These facilities do require major maintenance on a regular basis, and but they don't have to be all taken down at the same time. So, so that's a very important addition. Well, is so, the city going to be in on launching a campaign to get people to reducing their trash, their Opala? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, yes, to recycle more. Mm-hmm. So, so diversion overall. So, anything that could, you know, that would normally go to landfill if we didn't have any recycling or or incineration would be anything that doesn't go there is called diversion. And we're at about 82% diversion for the county, which is a really high number for a, mini- a large municipality. So that's um, pretty good. Yeah, it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we continue our efforts to do more recycling, mm-hmm. you know, recycling of, of uh, things that you wouldn't normally would be that are difficult, like white goods, you know, refrigerators and stuff like that, yeah. and, and other big things, mattresses. So we try and think about all those things, and a lot of the other stuff is, is small and it's easy. There's mm-hmm. also food waste, which uh, we'd like to divert more of that. There's all the recyclable materials, and we have active programs and all that, but they continue to expand. I mean, of course, our goal is to continue to divert as much as we can. Babcock added that the city is also looking at diverting some of the H-Power ash to use as construction aggregate in order to extend the life of any landfill. 
It's also preparing to announce plans for that pilot food project. Babcock is director of the city's environmental services department. He spoke with us this morning about an end-of-the-year deadline for the city to choose a new location for Oahu's trash. In addition to Kunia, the advisory committee was said to be considering other sites uh, out at Wailua, Waipahu, and another between Wailua uh, and Haleiwa. Uh, the current Waimanalo landfill along the Waianae coast is set to close in six years unless an extension is granted. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina since 1993. More information at hawaii-forest.com. You are tuned to The Conversation here on HPR One. And joining us for today's reality check is a reporter, Marcel Henre. He has a story about rail and the decision to stop short of Ala Moana Shopping Center and all the development around that mall. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. How's it? Good. So, yeah, everybody was uh, kind of freaking out <laughs> when the mayor announced that they were uh, stopping short of the shopping center there. Uh, but you uh, managed to talk to some of the developers that put up some high rises in that area. Yeah, that's right. So by coincidence, as, as um, you know, the, the mayor was making that announcement, and frankly, as we were kind of watching to see if something like that might happen – at uh, Civil Beat, we were starting to look at some of the property records and, and, frankly, thousands of real estate records along the last four miles that are planned for the line, including Alamoana Center. And so this uh, this is a new series that we're launching today uh, that's examining the property along rail and, and, frankly, who's kind of benefited to this point in the project. And it's called Banking on Rail. And we have a couple of segments uh, launching, a couple of installments, I should say, that are launching this week with uh, more to come later. And yeah, today is on Ala Moana and Ala Moana Center. Um, and basically this this form of a permit that's been used thus far called Interim Planning Development Transit uh, Permits uh, that the city has been giving out. And this basically is how the, uh, the bulk of the major development in Ala Moana for transient-oriented development, TOD development. It's how it's been approved thus far. And uh, this has uh, really rendered, you know, hundreds if not thousands of, of luxury uh, condo and condo hotel units uh, with uh, modest complements of affordable housing. But with this permit, basically the developers were able to kind of fast-track and get ahead of uh, zoning changes that are, are still in the works but haven't been done yet. Uh, but since rail was being planned, right, they, the city said, well, we've got to get moving on this. We've got to stay ahead of this. And they gave out some pretty lucrative uh, uh, permits and zoning allowances and, and flexibilities on how to develop that were profitable to, to developers. And lo and behold, now we might not have a rail line. It's it's uh, seriously in doubt whether it's it's going to, uh, you know, what, what those, those – um, those permits were predicated on in the first place, the yeah. rail line. It might not even make it there. And some folks think that we might have uh, given away the, the store, <laughs> gave, too, gave too much to the developers and didn't get too much affordable housing in return. 
Yeah, you know, there's a really interesting debate about whether the city got enough what they would call commensurate benefit, right? Enough in return for really these these lucrative fast track permits. And that's really what the, the story centers on. It looks at, at some of these different angles. But one of the, the key things that critics brought up was that, you know, they, they it should have seen something closer to 30 percent of these total units uh, resulting in affordable housing units, uh, what's considered affordable at least. And really what, what we saw was closer to to 10 to 20 percent of those units being affordable. So people are saying just on that face alone, uh, we didn't get enough in return for the fast track permits that went out. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know that, you know, there's that whole thought of, well, instead of building units, you you uh, just put money down, you know, an Im- like an impact fee. But, you know, that hasn't right, always been. Right, fee. Right. That yeah. hasn't been very successful. I think we saw that with like the golf courses way back when, I think in the, in right. the 90s. But, um, yeah. So, so the bottom line is uh, maybe we just gave away too much. Yeah, and it's it's maybe a cautionary tale for going forward, right? As as more of that line takes takes shape. Yeah, so uh, uh, looking forward to uh, uh, the other stories that we'll be uh, busting out this week. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri. Read his full story and more on civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Tioki Trading, featuring HDC water purification systems for pools, spas, and the whole home. Serving Hawaii for 40 years. Learn more by calling 834-2722. Want to meet a manta ray on Maui? Well, wildlife biologist Mark Dikos is your guy. He knows them all personally. Dikos spearheads the manta ray awareness program, which has cataloged over 600 individual manta rays across the islands. And he's asking for help from citizen scientists to help expand the census. Dikos is part of a panel discussion tonight put on by the Maui Nui Marine Resource Council that highlights opportunities for the public to participate in science. The conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with Dikos to learn what it is about the mysterious marine creature that has captured his imagination. What's interesting about manta rays, not only are they one of the largest fish in the ocean, they have the largest brain-to-body ratio. Generally, that equates to high cognitive ability, intelligence, what we associate with intelligence. Now, there's no reason why they should have that. That usually occurs in very social animals, like dolphins and primate and humans, of course, but manta rays aren't social. So we're still trying to figure out why they have such large brain-to-body ratios. And they're certainly very curious animals. Do you feel like, comparatively to other species, dolphins, turtles, that manta rays are well understood by the general public? No, there, there's definitely a lot of unknowns. Now, when I completed my Ph.D. work in 2010, it was only the second dissertation in the world on manta rays. So since then, there's been lots of documentaries, a lot more research has been done. So they've garnered a lot more attention from the public, but lots of gaps still remain. And what particular questions have you asked in your research about manta rays? 
Well, the very basic questions in order to properly manage, effectively manage these populations. One is how large are these populations, what their home range is, you know, how far do they span, and what the critical habitats are that they require uh, to survive. And certainly what are the threats, not natural threats, which generally are just large predators like sharks, but more importantly, the anthropogenic, the human-made threats. Those are becoming increasingly problematic and something we have to pay closer attention to. And you've been working with manta rays for about two decades, is that correct? Over two decades? Yes, correct. And how have you seen those threats in that last category that you mentioned, the man-made threats? How have you seen those change in that time? Yeah, so in the two decades that I've been spending underwater studying the manta rays, I've certainly seen some dramatic changes. Uh, They are reef associating, so the reef is extremely important. Our reefs, especially here in Hawaii, have degraded tremendously. We've lost 50% the health of our reefs in the last two decades alone, uh, in large part to man-made threats. So that could be uh, stormwater that's taking sediment down um, since we've denuded the lands. Uphill, uh, we get the large rains. They take the fine particles, and that smothers and kills our reefs. There's a lot of tainted chemicals on those sediments petrochemicals and pesticides and herbicides. So everything we put on land eventually does end up in the ocean, and that has a great impact on the reef and uh, even sewage. You know, we here on Maui, we inject primary treated sewage into the groundwater. That leaches up, still full of nutrients that causes algae blooms, and the, the warming waters from the climate change has also caused bleaching events where the algae that associate with the corals are stressed and they leave and the coral depends on that algae for part of their food source. So you see a lot of these white corals that a lot of times don't recover. So because those reefs are an important source, not only of the food, but for cleaning stations on the manta rays, that's having what appears to be a fairly big impact. The main area I did my research beginning in 2005, the reliability of finding mantas there at that cleaning station was probably 95%. So nine out of 10 dives, I'd have manta rays. Now it'd be one out of 20 dives, I might see some there. And I think that can be attributable to the reef degradation in the area. And switching gears a little bit, it's my understanding that you spearhead the manta ray population census, which is essentially trying to figure out exactly how many reef manta ray there are off the coast of Maui, getting precise numbers so that we know better how to protect their populations. Is that correct? Yeah. So one of the interesting findings from the genetic work we've done, there's a very popular manta ray population off the island of Hawaii, the big island. And they've been doing tours at night, dive tours, where the plankton gets attracted to the lights. It, it was started out lights from a hotel, but now the divers just kind of shift the lights offshore a bit, and then the mantas come in to feed. 
So that was a reliable area. We looked at uh, took some genetics from those animals comparing to the Maui mantas, and we found very, very low connection. And there's been no tagged animals that have crossed over or any photos that have matched comparing the two populations. So we, we know they're distinct population stocks. If one were to decline, they're not going to get repopulated from the neighboring population. That means you want to know how many are on each island and not only how many, but is that number increasing? Is it staying steady or is it declining? The manatees fortunately have a unique pattern under their ventral side, much like a humpback whale's tail. So all you have to do is photograph it and you've captured the identity, the fingerprint of that animal. So we track these. I've been doing the Maui one since 2005. We have now over 600 individuals, the largest manta ray population in the United States. The, the famous Big Island population, which we work with our colleagues there, the Manta Pacific Research Foundation, they catalog those. There are about 300 there. And we're starting to develop catalogs for Oahu and Kauai. And those right now, it's barely in the early stages. We have 19 from Kauai and 65 from Oahu. But you have to be in the water in order to encounter and capture those IDs. And I'm one person. Uh, we don't know where they congregate, where they hang out. It's sort of opportunistic. So by soliciting the community, the folks that are in the water regularly every day, and letting them know that, you know, if they can capture the photo of the ventral side and submit that, we can start to better understand those populations. And that's what's happening. Uh, we're getting more and more uh, submissions of not only current photos of people that have them archived from historical catalogs. So we're starting to build those life histories and, and understand more about these populations. How important to effective conservation is the active participation of the general public? Yeah, it's integral, and I think there are many reasons why that is. Obviously, many researchers, many nonprofits, you know, struggle with funding and and having the manpower to do the field work is always a challenge. So, if we can elicit the help from the community, that's a huge effort. It also engages the community and for them to be aware of the issues, the, the threats, and sort of maybe some of the solutions that we could implement. They become a voice. Of course, our elected officials pay attention to those voices. That's another area where citizen science can be very valuable. Uh, and the educational component. Scientists often have a hard time getting their information out in a format that the general public understands and needs to know in order to be informed, in order uh, to behave accordingly, to make changes, to effectively protect and preserve these populations. So community engagement is an important aspect of that, where they are not only learning about it, but they're actively doing the research, so they become the voices and the educators for the rest of the public. That was Mark Dekos, wildlife biologist with an eye for manta rays, speaking with the Conversations of Van Harriman Pope. You can learn more about how to participate in his manta ray census, as well as other citizen science opportunities through a panel discussion put on by the Maui Nui Marine Resource Council this evening. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. Today we are hunting through the underbrush on Hawaii Island for the sly omao, one of two remaining thrush species here in the islands. Hopefully its loud call will give us some clues. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. The omao, or Hawaiian thrush, is found only in the native rainforests of the Big Island. It's a mostly gray and brown robin-like bird that loves to eat fruit from a variety of native trees and shrubs and plays a big role in helping disperse the seeds of these species throughout the forest. Oma'o have one of the loudest and most recognizable songs of any Hawaiian forest bird. They have a huge repertoire of songs, and every individual sings differently. All the Hawaiian Islands used to have their own species of thrush, but unfortunately, Kauai is the only other one where they've not yet gone extinct. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. big part of life in our islands. Locals casting their poles all along our coastlines is a common sight. Today we hunt an interview with an Oahu native who makes a living by fishing for bass in the American South. Maddie Wong is the first person from Hawaii to qualify and compete in the Bass Master Elite Series, the highest level of professional bass fishing tournaments. The conversations Russell Subiano tracked down Wong and found him next to a lake in South Carolina working on his fishing gear. What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? I think it's a 100-pound bluefin in California, and then the next would probably be like a 50-pound oodle that I caught in high school. Can you talk a little bit more about your connection to fishing? What does it do for you? Is it a source of relaxation, or is it the way you challenge yourself? I think it's... uh... It's a combination of a bunch of things, really. For me, I've always been drawn to the water. You know, growing up on Oahu, I've been always just mesmerized by the ocean and by water, whether it was freediving, surfing, and just enjoying it. And I and I think it's a, like a form of therapy, almost relaxation, but the challenge, too. It's, it's the, one of those things. Like anyone who really knows me knows, like I'm a pretty high energy, can be kind of scatterbrained. But with fishing, I have this crazy amount of focus and I feel like I'm definitely challenged by it. And it's a forever changing puzzle, which makes it super unique and and really, really fun for me. 
I couldn't really say that it's all therapeutic because there's definitely times where I want to throw my head on the wall, but most of the time it's really relaxing and the camaraderie that I have with other fellow anglers, those are lifetime friendships. Growing up on Oahu, you must have honed your skills around the island. Is there any place to catch bass on the island? Oh, yeah. There's, so there's Lake Wilson, which is in Wahiwa. That's where I grew up and I spent a lot of time. Actually, I used to fish for tilapia there when I was a little kid. My dad would take me and we'd just go fishing at the ramp before we had a small boat. And that's where, I don't know, I fell in love with just catching tilapia. You know, there's peacock bass, there's largemouth bass. And when I got a little bit older, I think I was like eight or nine years old, our family, we would go to Ho'omalahia Botanical Gardens in Kaneohe, and we would go camping. Back then, in the man-made reservoir, or the I guess it would be the flood spillway overflow reservoir that they have there, there was really, really good smallmouth bass in there. I just kind of stumbled upon it one day on accident. I just left my fishing rod while we were camping, and I ended up catching a really good smallmouth bass, and that's when I I, would, I told my parents, I'm like, can we go back to Ho'omalihia? I just want to go camp. <laughs> All I wanted to do was go fishing. Saltwater fishing is fun. And I spent a lot of time saltwater fishing, like sliding for ulua, whether you know, bait casting for eel or whipping for papil doing all that but there's something about fishing in the freshwater where you don't have to constantly feel like you're looking over your shoulder or watching your back like how you do in the ocean and especially well like slide bait like where you got to watch not only your back but you got to watch your partner's back to make sure that you're able to do it safely but yeah lake wilson is a, a place that kind of was like my first intro to bass fishing and then later on in life when i moved out to california that's when i was able to finally compete in the sport and that's when it really blew up for me Speaking of becoming a competitor, I know you from the film industry here. I also know you're a well-known saxophone player. I think it's safe to say that very few people would have guessed that you would have become the first person from Hawaii to ever fish on the Elite Series or qualify for the Bassmaster Classic. Was becoming, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, was becoming a competitive bass fisher your dream all along? It's funny because I was probably the only kid in the 90s that would watch old bass fishing videos like of this, you know, Roland Martin and Bill Dance and just these old school VHSs. And then obviously, like every other kid who was in the fishing in Hawaii is like Mike Sakamoto and Harry Gochima with like Let's Go Fishing and Fishing Tales. I've always wanted to have my own fishing show. uh, And that was the reason why, you know, part of the reason why I went through ACM. And I've always been kind of an entertainer my whole life. It was always kind of a pipe dream where I thought, you know, it'd be, it would be so cool to be able to compete, you know, professionally one day. But, you know, I also had a lot of also crazy dreams. You know, I wanted to be a pro surfer. I also wanted to play in the NHL. Like I wanted to do a bunch of random things. And it was just one of those dreams that was there, but it was so far-fetched that not until like I actually started taking steps towards it and, you know, succeeding did it really kind of open up into my eyes like oh my gosh is actually a possibility is this like one of those you know one of those pipe dreams as a kid like oh man that would be so cool to be able to fish the classic would have been cool if you were the first hawaiian nhl player too though that that would have been cool too (laughs) (laughs) obviously there's a difference between ocean fishing and bass fishing can you mm-hmm. kind of talk about what the big differences are? Is it the technique? Is it the gear? Is it the lures? Mm, yes and no. 
you know, ocean fishing, you have to be very aware of what, what's going on with conditions, whether you, do you have trades, you have conas, do you have, is it swir- like, is it swirling? Is the wind swirling? What's going on? Like, what's your swell direction coming from? Does it ground swell? Is it short interval? Like, what's going on with the tide swings? What, what's our moon phases? There's a lot of things that overlap into the freshwater space, but I feel like for me, again, it's, it's relaxing being able to be on a lake and not have to be watching my back, except for, you know, looking out for other boaters and whatnot. But versus when you're in the ocean, it's, you know, growing up in Hawaii, that's the first thing that you learn is to respect the ocean. Right. And not that I don't respect the lake. I, I do. It's just the power of the ocean that I've seen on so many different times in my life. I've, I've, I have this very healthy respect for it. There is a lot of skills that kind of slide over. The cool thing that I really like about bass fishing is that there's certain techniques that you need to practice, like casting into a cup-sized area, like literally the size of a, a tennis ball that's you know 25 or 20, 25 feet away, and being extremely accurate with each cast or each flip or pitch to be able to present your lure to what would be a bass ready to ambush. You can almost rely on a fish holding behind a specific rock or holding onto a specific tree or a little branch. They're a little bit more predictable, but at the same time, you would think that you have all of the tools and all of the techniques down, but things change every day throughout the seasons, which, you know, it makes it the forever challenging, forever changing puzzle that I'm challenged by and like completely addicted to. Another thing I'm curious about is the competitive circuit. Can you talk about how competitive bass fishing works? Do you win because of the amount of fish you catch, or the is it the weight of the fish you catch? Yeah, so in the Bassmaster Elite Series, we go to nine different states, or I should say nine different fisheries, because a couple of the fisheries are in the same state. And we're competing against 94 of the top-ranked bass anglers in the world and guys qualify from Japan. There was a guy from Portugal a couple years ago. The way that we compete against each other is based off of an eight-hour day, and we have live wells in our boat where we keep fish alive, and the whole game is basically catching five of the biggest bass you can and then bringing them in alive where we weigh them in front of a crowd, and then they get released. And so there's this kind of that conservation aspect of it too, which I really enjoy. But yeah, you know, you can catch as many as you want, but if they're all two pounders, you're only going to weigh in 10 pounds for the day versus, you know, you're looking for your biggest bites. So there's a strategy on how to manage your day, how to manage your time, how to fill out your, your limit, which is five bass, and then how to go and hunt for the larger fish. Are there a lot of crowds there at the tournaments? Do you get a lot of people on this uh, on the shores watching? Yeah. So in South Carolina, there was for the classic, there was six thousand people at Blast Off, which was really incredible. Wow. And yeah, that was really neat to see. That's the most people I've ever seen at a fishing tournament. And then you have spectators that follow bass anglers around mm-hmm. in their own personal boats and just watch them fish. And yeah, in the South, bass fishing is is huge and. We're really treated like celebrities down here, which is pretty funny. <laughs> the juxtaposition yeah. of like growing up in Hawaii, it's like you say I'm a professional bass fisherman, they'd be like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, best of luck to you, man. Hopefully when you retire, you know, you can have your own show. 
that would be awesome too. Oh man, that's that's the dream right there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right on. That's, that's the dream. And that was Honolulu native and professional bass fisherman Matty Wong talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Wong's next tournament kicks off tomorrow in Tennessee. And that's it for us for our show today. I'm Catherine Cruz. Now back over to our pitch table. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts, Homa Nights, offering entertainment, art experiences, beverages, and bites on Friday and Saturday evenings. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.